Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach, a special mini-series from the Curbsiders, bringing you your weekly dose of edutainment. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Krishnovskaya. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss the entity of therapeutic reasoning with our returning Curbsiders guests, Dr. Gupreek, Dollywal, and a new favorite, Dr. Emily Abdoller. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a great conversation tonight with our guests, Dr. Gupreet Dhaliwal and Dr. Emily Abdullard, and we cover the concept of management and therapeutic reasoning, what it is and how to teach it. And this is something that we've been doing all along, but we finally had the language to describe our processes and improve our teaching techniques. You may remember Dr. Dhaliwal from prior Curbsiders episodes. Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal is a clinician, educator, and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He sees patients and teaches medical students and residents in the emergency department, inpatient wards, and outpatient clinic at the San Francisco VA Medical Center, where he directs the internal medicine clerkship. He studies, writes, and speaks about how doctors think, how they make diagnoses, and how they develop diagnostic expertise and what motivates them to improve their practice and the systems in which they work. Emily Abdullar, MD, MAED, is a clinician educator, infectious disease specialist, and assistant professor of medicine at the University of Michigan. She sees patients and teaches medical students and residents in the hospital, on ID consults and inpatient wards, and in the outpatient ID clinic in Michigan. She also directs the microbiology course in the Michigan School of Medicine. She loves thinking about hashtag meded, infections, clinical reasoning, and the combination thereof. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's get to it. Great. Well, welcome, Dr. Dhaliwal and Dr. Abdoller. Thanks so much for joining us. Do you mind if we call you Gupreet and Emily this morning? That's, That's perfectly fine. Thank you. Great. Fine with me. Awesome. Well, uh, we, Gabri, you're a returning guest, but we still like to uh, have our, our audience get to know you a little bit better. Um, so we'll start with some rapid fire questions. Emily, could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Uh, so I am a very young woman uh, who is an ID, <laughs> an ID doc, uh, a med-ed enthusiast, a wife, and a mother to two spirited girls uh, who loves running but is no longer fast and enjoys cooking and, more importantly, uh, enjoying the fruits of other people's cooking. <laughs> well, it's hard to run with a double stroller, so I... Uh... <laughs> And Gurpreet, since it's been a couple of years since you were on, um, do you want to give us a one-liner as well? Sure, I can uh, do the same. I'm a 48-year-old uh, general internist. I'm a clinician educator, so I spend all of my days and all of my weeks um, teaching students and residents uh, in the emergency room and the wards uh, and the clinics at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. Um, I'm also a husband, and I'm a, a father to two boys. Uh, they are nine 
ninth grade and 11th grade. And I think just like Emily was saying, not quite fast enough, they have now outstripped me in their respective sports. So they are a basketball player and a cross-country runner. There was a time where I could hang with them, and now they have both literally and figuratively left me in the dust. <laughs> but I still enjoy getting to hang out with them when I can. I was re-listening to your old episode um, the other day in preparation for this to see what we'd covered around diagnostic reasoning. And at that point, your younger son was still, uh, you were still above him. So it sounds like he's yes. outpaced you now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure people get an updated picture yes. of our family. And that, that's the update. Awesome. I think that time I also forgot their ages. So I was very certain this time to use their grades because it's much easier. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, Gurpreet and Emily, I was wondering if you could share with the audience maybe a book recommendation that you feel every physician should read. And maybe well, Emily, you might go first. Yeah, sure. So, of course, there are so many. And I think when I was first thinking about this question, I thought, gosh, I don't read enough uh, <laughs> is my first reaction. But to be on brand, I think How to Survive a Plague is just a really wonderful book. It's it's a fantastic documentary, but I think the book brings a richness that really helps understand the last, or not the last, but one of the, the major pandemics we face before the present one, and for me, really highlights the role of patients and advocating and changing the way that we practice medicine and conduct science. And so I just think it's fantastic. Thank you. And Gupreet, do you have a recommendation for us in terms of a book that every physician should read? Yeah, I don't know if my uh, book would rise to the level that every physician should read. That's a pretty tall order. I can just share one I'm in the midst of. Um, I don't, I, I should confess, I never read books. I only listen to audio books, but I do try to do that regularly. And I'm in the middle of one or towards the end of one, which is just fantastic. It's Daniel Kahneman and co-author's new book, Noise. Um, so Kahneman is very, um, he's a Nobel laureate, a cognitive psychologist. And I think he introduced many people to the concept of biases in our judgment and reasoning. And this new book sort of takes a look at the other side of the equation, which is noise. And that was actually a new concept to me. But the, the whole point is, I think we're all becoming more familiar with the fact that we may have a cognitive bias or implicit bias. And that just means that um, a given person will skew in a different errant direction, judgment about a person or practice tendency. Um, so an example might be like, I'm a conservative emergency room physician, and I tend to admit a lot of people with pneumonia. That's just my bias, and I do that, and we can examine it. Noise is this totally interesting side of the equation. I never thought about, which is that there's a massive amount of variation in my own practice, and there's a massive amount of variation between doctors in that, um, and that's also a source of noise that we should try to um, mitigate. It's really cool. They examine like how judges and doctors and financial people make all these sort of variations, even if you give them the same piece of data. Like if you give a doctor an x-ray and show it to them two weeks apart, two doctors will definitely disagree, but sometimes that same doctor disagrees with themselves. Huh. <laughs> so that, that's a great book. It's, it's, um, I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. I know the problem. I'm waiting to find out what the solutions are now. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And, um, and any advice that you love to give to your learners or your colleagues or some favorite advice that you've received through your years? Emily, if we could start with you. Oh, great. Yes. I think um, one of the most important pieces of advice was to look for the learning in each case. Uh, I think there's a tendency, especially in, in the current medical climate with burnout and everything else, to view some cases as um, as even boring. And I think that those are potentially the most dangerous and also the ones where we can really challenge ourselves, challenge ourselves in the way that Gupreet just brought up around what are our tendencies and our biases and 
what do we sort of take as canon that maybe doesn't have a lot of basis and evidence? There's always questions that you can ask to dig a little deeper, even if it's a problem that you've seen over and over, um, if you really take the time to understand the context. So that's been something that I try to keep in mind as I practice and share with learners that I work with. Okay. And I can bring up one that Gurpreet shared with uh, me and shares over and over when he teaches, which is you can always start late, but you can never end late. And I keep that in mind when I'm teaching. And really going back to the basic principle that if you're if you're taking too long, then you're probably including too much information. So what are the points that you really want to distill, knowing that there's only so much somebody can take away from an initial lecture? I love that. It's like meta best advice. <laughs> um, I think just on the topic of, you know, being kind and also I think being humble, because I, I think that that often is something I also recall from people is kind of how they made me feel and their humility coming through. I wonder if uh, you both could share kind of your favorite failure and maybe what you learned from it. And Gapreeth, we can start with you. Yeah, I think this couldn't have been more planned. I was thinking about what Emily said is actually, again, I don't have a favorite, but it's a recent one that sits with me because one of the ways you grow as a teacher is teaching about stuff that's new to you, right? So instead of your favorite talk or your favorite lecture. So someone asked me to give a talk recently on like leading through gratitude and appreciation. I said, yeah, I'll try that. I'll take it as a stretch assignment. But I committed the cardinal sin that Emily just gave me credit for prohibiting, which is I went too long. So I planned the talk and I really enjoyed it. I had um, some wisdom from business. Um, I had some of my own thoughts on it. And I had all these great clips from the Apple TV show, Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've seen Ted yes. Lasso, but it is a really great show about a, a football coach from America who goes to the UK to try to teach soccer. And he actually, he's a great teacher because he just believes in his people. He brings out the best. So uh, the, the point was, I, I felt like it was a bit of a failure as a teacher. I know to do better next time, but I went too long. Um, and I, next time I'm going to cut out more of my stuff and just keep the Ted Lasso because that was the goal. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Emily, do you have one that you want to share? Uh, I guess I was thinking more of one related to career. So I've always been interested in med ed, but I, I, it took a long time to decide that that was acceptable. Uh, so when I got to residency, I wanted to sort of try other things out and, and, sort of see if I could fit into more of um, the classic representation of an academic physician. So I did the clinical research track, which was wonderful. And I learned a lot. But my project, the statistics were way over my head and beyond what skills I could teach myself as, as a resident. And it was really through that experience that I decided that whatever it took that med ed was how I wanted to define myself. And I think it was through that experience that I thought, well, if I want to do this, I should make it as robust as possible. So without sort of that failure, I don't think I would have sought out additional skills in med ed, um, especially around med ed research and become a qualitative researcher. <laughs> um, so I think that that's one of my most fortuitous failures among many. We hear that a lot among people that, you know, you think your path is leading one way and then unexpectedly you get pushed in this other direction and it actually turns out to be more of your passion. So I think great to keep in mind. Yara, did you have a, a pick of the week that you wanted to share? Sure. I think my pick of the week is a is a bit of a strange one, but it's uh, the often forgotten beat plant, uh, one that's not often forgotten by my motherland uh, from Ukraine, but recently I have rediscovered it in um, many dishes. So uh, in beet salad, uh, beets in the morning with the kind of your eggs. And I just have really 
rediscovered my love for it because I think I grew up eating it. I think if you bled me, it would be like beet juice, but I, uh, and I took a hiatus from it. And I think as an adult, I'm rediscovering it and um, just really want to make sure people don't forget that um, an often cause of hematuria that uh, has happened yes. to some of my patients. So, <laughs> but I will say recently, I just have really enjoyed it in my cooking and uh, yeah, would just recommend folks give it a shot. You have inspired me to go back. My, uh, my college roommate was from Russia and she taught me to make borscht and I haven't made it in many years, but it is delicious. It is. It is. It's also um, secretly a Ukrainian dish that is okay. often, um, I think a lot of Ukrainians feel a lot of nationalism with that dish. Uh-huh. I, I, per, I personally am just like, yeah, it's borscht. My parents are always like, yeah, just add the beets to taste. And I'm like, what does that actually mean? Because <laughs> you could just keep adding beets. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a popular Ukrainian dish. Can, can I just tell you that I just recently, a month ago, uh, maybe two months ago, right, with one of my favorite residents who I won't implicate, uh, misdiagnosed hematuria, and it was beets. A patient, we were trying to do things by phone, and a patient called in and said, bright red uh, blood and urine, showed us a picture. We're like, oh, that's definitely it. We said, why don't you go to the lab? And we know you're going to need the CT scan. So we got all these things before he showed up in clinic, uh, and they were completely negative, And it just didn't make sense for that much blood. And then we found out, it was just two months ago, it was fresh in my mind, that um, I don't know what his formulation was of beets. That's a whole other level. <laughs> <laughs> what was the formulation <laughs> for them? I, I don't know if it was a juice. Is there such a thing as beet juice, yeah. or am I making mm-hmm. that up? Okay, I, I'm having mind. I think that's what was going on. It scares people. I mean, if they've never seen it before, I've, I've had a number yeah. of patients just pay of <laughs> same here i've had family yeah. members as well be like is it the beads i'm like it's probably the beads <laughs> <laughs> if it's gone tomorrow <laughs> yeah. that was a telediagnosis fail on our part but lesson learned <laughs> yes uh, my pick is going to be a book called the prophets by robert jones jr it's um, a book about a host of characters um living on a slave plantation Uh, before the Civil War. And it's just really a beautiful story and just such rich characters um, and a really interesting portrayal of race and sexuality and gender rights and um, just a a really great read. Molly, I love that. It was a recent book of the month uh, choice. I'm in this club or this um, site that uh, kind of sends you books. And that one was just so incredible and rich. And I just remember crying on multiple occasions mm-hmm. reading through it. Very, so powerful. very powerful. Awesome. Well, let's uh, jump into the topic today. Uh, we'll start with a case to help us think about therapeutic reasoning and its role in med education. Let's see. So we have Jackie. She's a second year internal medicine resident with whom you've worked with when she rotated through your clinic a few times this year. She is seeing a patient with a history of rheumatoid arthritis on chronic prednisone, 10 milligrams who comes in with a swollen, painful red right lower leg. So Jackie presents the patient's story to you with a comprehensive history, a detailed focused physical exam, and a prioritized differential diagnosis. She's considering which antibiotics to give and wants to discuss her concerns about antibiotic choice with you. So Emily, in your role as an ID doc, I'm sure this happens to you frequently. You know, someone's coming in, which antibiotic do I start? But I was wondering if we could take a step back uh, from this case and think about kind of an outline of how you think about management reasoning or its subset therapeutic reasoning. So maybe we'll start with a definition, just kind of how you define therapeutic reasoning. I think starting with definitions is a great idea because I think a lot of times when people say clinical reasoning, what they really mean is diagnostic reasoning because that's really been the focus for for decades and and appropriately so. But I really 
gained a lot of information from reading a paper by Cook, Cook, Sherbino, and Durning in 2018 about management reasoning and its neglect within the literature. And so I think of clinical reasoning as really encompassing both diagnostic and management reasoning. And there's a really nice table in that paper that tries to delineate the differences between the two. So I've really come to accept that diagnosis is mostly what sort of happens in our head. It is a labeling task. So you take all the information you have at any given moment and you assign it a label or at least a prioritized differential diagnosis. And then really everything else that happens is management reasoning. So it's choosing appropriate therapy, but it's also thinking about um, what other diagnostic tests do you need? Uh, what monitoring and follow-up? And it's it's much more situated or contextual where you think about what's possible within your particular system and what is the best course of action looking at that patient. Uh, so that's management reasoning. And then therapeutic reasoning is a subset of management reasoning focused on treatment selection. And what I love about this case and what doesn't happen all the time is that um, Jackie is wanting to talk about choice. And what we don't always recognize, because maybe we jump into it a little too fast or have our rote sort of non-analytic answer to a particular diagnosis, is that there are often multiple possibilities. And that's where the process of therapeutic reasoning comes into play, where you decide what features are going to make you choose one therapy over another, uh, and then what's your plan going forward. And I think the only other two points I'll make is that I see this process, even though I've split them into two, is very iterative. So further testing and even response to treatment over or how the patient does over time can lead to further diagnostic designations. And so that's really important that it's not static. And then um, without going too much further into the weeds is really to focus on that context. And so I think that there's often no perfect choice for a treatment selection, and it really comes down to weighing different priorities, including patient preferences, costs, the systems in which you're practicing. And that makes it a lot more complicated, but definitely with a lot more situational factors than we think about with diagnostic reasoning. I think that's so helpful. I, I mean, I, I feel like we, as you said, have spent so much energy on diagnostic reasoning and differential diagnoses. And obviously, that is incredibly important to patient care. But in primary care, really most of what we do is management reasoning. Most of the time, the patient already has a diagnosis or it's a chronic uh, chronic condition. So um, I love thinking about this kind of more explicitly and thinking about how we can teach this in the best way as possible. Right. And that your trainee can come to you and say, I want to use cephalexin for cellulitis instead of amoxicillin. And, or, and a different trainee could say, I want to use amoxicillin instead of cephalexin. And both may be right. And it really depends upon the reasoning and the contextual factors around that choice. I'll just jump in. I really like this distinction. I think the, um, I think Molly, you mentioned that we can use it as sort of a tool in our teaching and, and the teacher needs to have a map sort of, you know, what am I going to choose with this learner? Am I going to choose their diagnostic reasoning as a point or am I going to choose their management reasoning and then the subsets that are in there? And we oftentimes time is short when we're 
teaching. So we're sort of trying to, um, you know, a clinician educator does an assessment and plan on the patient and they do an assessment and plan on the learner in parallel. And and one of those choices is to be like, am I going to focus on and make sure the diagnostic reasoning is optimized or am I going to make an effort to optimize management reasoning? We may not think that way explicitly, but maybe that's one of our goals here today is for the teacher to realize like, what exactly am I doing? I think that's very much one of our goals today. And I think I appreciate having both of you on here to help us with that. I wonder if I could push, um, Emily, you and Gapreeth, a little bit more about the management reasoning kind of subsets that we've highlighted. And you kind of talked about therapeutic reasoning a bit. Um, and I also heard maybe monitoring um, in that frame as well. I wonder if you can just kind of give us a little bit more of a outline. You mentioned system factors, patient factors, kind of really what goes into um, the management reasoning breakdown and maybe the, the tree of understanding that piece a bit more. And maybe we'll turn to um, Gupreet first, if that's okay. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, chime in on this. I think it's something that's still evolving because Emily outlined like this is situated, right? So diagnosis is interesting. On some level, it, there is only one diagnosis. It may be elusive. We may never know it, but it is a falsifiable hypothesis that can be accepted or rejected. And when it comes to reasoning, um, or sorry, management reasoning, oftentimes we can't take two paths at once. Like if we go down one route that we cannot do the counterfactual, what if we did something else um, as we're discussing with the learners or with ourselves? So there's a ton of skills. There's, there's sort of a bunch of cognitive structures. And I think Emily's research outlines this really nicely. But I think some of the other areas that come into it, we have names for in MedEd. Like we have shared decision-making, high-value care, um, communication, monitoring and feedback, um, even uh, workplace learning and how things work in our system or our context. So there's other med-ed areas of knowledge or healthcare areas of knowledge that get brought into it. Um, I view them as like a series of skills that are um, encircling the core skill, which is does the learner have this knowledge structure to understand how we treat um, cellulitis and what uh, drugs we might pick and how I pick between them because uh, they have all of those other things to negotiate. You know, as Emily said, diagnosis is a classification task and management reasoning is an optimization task that has tons of constraints and negotiation and prioritization um, and emotions um, and much more patient care involvement. I mean, you know, we oftentimes don't involve the patient in saying like, you know, are you interested in me calling this an MI or not? We don't <laughs> solicit that much uh, feedback or would you like to interpret your TSH with me? Like we usually take that on for ourselves. But when it comes to, you know, would you like to get um, a cath or just take medications or are you willing to take Synthroid or do you have any concerns about that? We have, those are a whole different set of skills. I think it's also really important to name that because often we are doing that and we don't have maybe the words or the terminology to to really call out what we're doing or what we're seeing a learner do. So I really appreciate you both kind of giving us the 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 words to really describe what we're seeing. Emily, were you going to add something in? Yeah, I just think to your point, Ira, the the medical education system has been set up at least recently to have people talk about a lot about why they're prioritizing the differential in certain ways, why they're labeling things in certain ways, but we don't always leave as much time for talking through the reasoning behind the management decisions that we're, that we're making. And I also think while we may include 
patience in some aspects of management, there's been a tendency maybe not to involve them as much in other aspects. And I think my my own research made me more cognizant of this. So instead of just talking about antibiotics, yes or no, I try to bring up antibiotic choice with patients when I feel like there are reasons that I might choose one or another. And it really depends on the patient's preferences and how how they prioritize different aspects of of their care. I had a discussion like that yesterday with a patient in terms of choosing a third generation oral cephalosporin or fluoroquinolone for step-down therapy for a diverticular abscess for which we didn't have great culture data. And we had a really good discussion about, you know, the risks of this patient's workout uh, tendencies with fluoroquinolone, which they had read about versus, um, how well they had tolerated cephalosporins in the past and, and other considerations. So I think it adds a richness to our patient um, shared decision-making that we haven't always prioritized in healthcare. And I do think we have, you know, we have a, the skill there that sounds like really like textbook shared decision-making, right? Knowing the patient and their values. And um, I'm really thrilled that we have it in um, health professions education, but we all still have to keep learning that skill. I, I was, um, in the recent past, I was talking to someone else about shared decision making, and they weren't even familiar with the concept. They're like, you know, what is that? They're like, I make a decision and then I share it with the patient. Oh. I said, no, no, that's not, that's not what shared decision making is. <laughs> so let's recast what that is. But as we, whether we call it, you know, I'm teaching you shared decision making if we're guiding a learner in it, um, or if they're watching someone, like if they're watching Emily do that, then she would unpack it for them afterwards. Like, this is what I did in my managed reasoning process. I, I paid special attention to this skill. I think discussions of value come into it a lot. And we and I think we've labeled those as diagnostic reasoning, but really taking this, uh, the current definition that we're working with, a decision to pursue a CT or an ultrasound for certain types of problems could, is really management reasoning and why you choose one over the other and discussions of value. I think those are really important and uh, people are still learning, I think, and we have to guide them through it, really assigning value and assigning pretest prob probability and understanding the way that, you know, Bayesian statistics work in our, clin in our clinical reasoning are important and, and maybe we don't spend enough time on those skills. And you mentioned kind of a number of sort of the steps involved when you think about therapeutic reasoning, shared decision-making with the patient, considerations of other external factors. Do you have kind of a, an overall outline of the particular steps involved in therapeutic reasoning, say in this case, in deciding antibiotic therapy? So the research that I've done before came up with somewhat of a rudimentary model for this that it, that has uh, it's pretty basic. But you have your diagnosis or your differential diagnosis, and there's an extra step for infectious diseases based reasoning, and that you think then what are the possible pathogens? Because of course we know for most things there are multiple different pathogens that can be causing that particular syndrome, and we don't always know which one it is. And then you, to me, at that point, you activate therapy scripts and not to overuse the term script, but when a particular diagnosis comes to mind for me, I think, well, what are my different antibiotic choices or antimicrobial choices? And I have pre-existing knowledge about those choices. For instance, 
outside of any particular patient context, I know that fluoroquinolones put somebody at risk for tendinopathy and it might be increased for certain people and less likely for others, but that's independent of the case. And then from those various options, I compare what I know about those drugs with the particular case, with the particular clinical context, and that includes things like understanding value-based decisions, engaging in shared decision-making, knowing what sort of follow-up and monitoring plan I need depending upon what therapeutic choice I make, and then figuring out which one is the best fit, taking everything into consideration. So to me, it's it's not really a series of steps at that point, but it's taking all of it into account and really comparing my knowledge with the case and then seeking additional knowledge that I don't have as needed. And I think that's a big point for learners as well, is you don't have to have all this memorized. I don't know all the drug-drug interactions that are important for every antibiotic. Certain ones come up more frequently and are always in our minds, but it's really about knowing what questions to ask and where to get that information. So I always look in micromedics to see if there's, if any of the antibiotics that I'm using are going to have problems for a patient's uh, other medications. And so I think that's a big part of it as well, that this, in our modern context, this doesn't have to be all in your head. You just have to know what you don't know, sort of bring up an ancient uh, idea. But an important one. I, super important. I loved Emily's concept of a therapy script when I read it in the research, because it does, um, to simplify things, it does sound a lot like diagnosis. You know, diagnosis starts with a problem. We use a schema to go down a branching algorithm. And at the end of that schema are a bunch of scripts that we pick from, right? Like the knee pain may be osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis or gout. Um, but once we um, accept one of those as the provisional label, that's where it goes to the top of the, the therapeutic process. That's our problem. We're solving that diagnosis. And at the end of it are a number of treatment options that you can pick. And you oftentimes will have a schema or a branching algorithm that gets you to those. And those therapy scripts that uh, Emily mentioned in the case of antibiotics, it, it, I, you have to know it, right? Just like you have to know gout on the diagnosis side, you have to know the gout treatments on the treatment side. And so knowing those antibiotics in this case, including what you outsource to the web, um, is, is I think it's a very parallel knowledge structure and process. This core part, remember we said there's a huge ton of skills around it, but that core cognitive task seems very parallel to me. And I think it's useful to also highlight to the listeners and to learners that those diagnoses uh, or those treatment choices are often part of the uh, for can contribute to further diagnosis. So we've all had cases where we prescribe empiric antibiotics and then the person fails to improve and you start to think, what does this mean for my initial provisional diagnosis did i have is it really an infection if it is an infection is it a pathogen that i'm not covering with my current antimicrobial choices so that's where follow up and monitoring comes into play and where every decision that we make on the management side can help us hone the actual diagnosis that we assign to the clinical situation over time and that's where I've really come to appreciate this word management reasoning. It took me a lot of time, even including thinking about this podcast, that the, you know, there's therapeutic reasoning, but um, management reading, reasoning includes that monitoring process. And it may feed back to say, I'm going to revise the diagnostic reasoning I did. It may go back to feedback the therapeutic reasoning I did. I, I think now it's becoming a more helpful concept for me to understand that whole management phase and how some arrows point backwards again. 
And how do you use this in your teaching, Capreet, when you're precepting? How do you kind of infuse teaching points around clinical or therapeutic reasoning? Yeah, I think the um, if I was to make if my tendency, like we have this uh, resident who's presenting someone with the, the red leg, for instance, right? And I think I would still, some part of me would just, I have a compulsion to make sure like the cellulitis diagnosis is correct. So I might have to force myself out of the diagnostic reasoning process and say, you know, I'm convinced um, her reasoning was so sound with the problem representation and prioritized differential and argument that she made that we are both going to jump into the management side of things. And I think uh, the old me and probably also the me when I'm busy um, doesn't explore management enough. Like she may pick the antibiotic that I was also going to pick and I'm so happy and I say, sounds great, let's get going. But the new me or the improving me has to say, you know, this is, if I think there was nothing I could add in her diagnostic reasoning, then I have to find a way uh, to push her on her therapeutic reasoning. And a great example is, let's say she picked the antibiotic I would have chosen, uh, cephalexin, septra, whatever it is. I have to, let's say that's the right answer. The attending's choice is the right answer. We'll just use it as such. You always have to ask yourself and say, did she get the right answer because she has gone through a very, very rigorous process? Or is it just pattern recognition? That's the only antibiotic she's familiar with? Or was it a lucky guess? Um, and I hearken back to what I think a lot of us learn from our teachers, um, uh, really our great teachers, they would never give us credit if we turn something in with the answer uh, unless you show your work. And so I think what I, in order to really do this, I have to explore the margin of her knowledge. And so I would have to say, can you give me um, essentially a prioritized argument for what you thought the best therapy was, what a plausible therapy would have been, and maybe even what would have been an imprudent therapy that you're not even mentioning to me so I can see your pluses and minuses? Very much paralleling the prioritized differential. I love that. Thank you for spelling that out, Gupreet. And I wonder if I can turn to Emily because I can imagine that you are doing this uh, again on a daily basis, if probably not a minute by minute basis. But I wonder to uh, pull on Gupreet's terms of showing your work, how do you decide, you know, am I going to Micromedics to look up the kind of drug-drug interaction with my time? Am I going to kind of infuse that teaching pearl about a specific component of the management reasoning? How do you make it uh, make that decision in your mind. And I can imagine in a busy ID uh, clinic or ID service. I think it's really about picking, it's about diagnosing the learner and then picking the thing that you think is going to be most helpful to them, um, as well as uh, the the thing that matches the case the best. So I think we often operate in that realm where we're trying to make things count twice or three times. We do that in all sorts of contexts in med ed. And for teaching, I think, what what do we need to discuss for this case? And how can I make that the best learning sort of point for the particular learner based on where they're at? Uh, and you get creative with different levels because it, you may have an early learner in your clinical setting. And we've all seen that students are joining us earlier and earlier, which is so important to give them context um, and specific in instances to sort of remember these things. But the amount that you're able to engage in management reasoning, reasoning with them may be limited. So you really just pick a point that focuses on what you need to sort of go through with the patient. So, or with the patient. So you may say something like in this case, cephalexin, um, does the patient have any allergies? And so you're reminding them that even though the system often checks for allergies, that it's important for us to ask about them. They may not all be listed. They may not be true. And you can make that teaching point 
And you can also say like, great, no allergies. What if this person had a beta-lactam allergy? What might you think about prescribing then? And then you can dig more into those basic principles. Do they understand why they're choosing the antibiotic that they're choosing, meaning the pathogens that we think are most likely and what we need to cover? So that's, that's sort of how I think about it. I like to use the management pause, which is very similar to sort of what Gurpreet has mentioned. Um, and it's been mentioned in the literature a lot. It's sort of like the diagnostic pause. And they've used it recently for everything from complex ethical decisions around COVID-19 patients to thinking systematically about value, healthcare value in different contexts. But I just ask four questions why are we choosing this therapy for this patient? And I always give the caveat, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. I just want to hear why you want to use this particular drug. What are the potential downsides? Because no drug is perfect. Every drug has potential side effects and burdens and costs. What are at least one or two potential alternatives and why aren't we choosing them? And then have you asked the patient for their perspective or how might we include them in this decision in an appropriate way? And so those are four questions that I like to ask. And I would underscore what we just heard there, which is like, you know, if we want to be teachers of reasoning, you have to have some artifact of their reasoning, right? Like if the resident said, hey, I want to use Vanco, there's no way to judge reasoning based on that. You need either conversation, something spoken, something written, or an observation of their activities. But you have to have some artifact. You're almost like an anthropologist. You need some artifact of their reasoning in order for you to comment on it. And so if it didn't come out in the conversation, then you have to ask those why questions or probing questions or give a challenge response so that they reveal some reasoning. And hopefully you can get to the margin of their knowledge because we all have a margin of our knowledge on every topic. Um, but you do need an artifact in order to um, start the, the discussion and the teaching. It can't just be a conclusion. Great. Well, maybe we'll jump into the second case, which I, I think we've already started to, to touch on the issues kind of surrounding this about thinking about learners at different levels and um, kind of how do you tailor around teaching this to different people at different uh, different situations in their learning. Um, so we have Jamie. She's a fourth-year medical student rotating on the inpatient medicine team. Uh, actually, I guess it's a male. Um, and he is following a patient who admitted was admitted for acute cholecystitis and is presenting the patient's case with a focus on the assessment and plan to you the morning after the admission. You know that his goal for this rotation was to improve his assessment and plans with a focus especially on management plans infused with evidence-based medicine and the latest guideline treatment. As he goes through the plan for the patient and considerations for instrumentation, you started to outline a list of teaching points in your mind. So thinking specifically about Jamie's goal of improving his assessment and plans uh, for this particular patient, how as a teacher do you kind of uh, focus on that specific goal around the idea of management or therapeutic reasoning? Yeah, so this is a common scenario, even, even though it's a surgical disease, it's frequently on the medical service, um, which is acute cholecystitis. And um, I think this, is, this would be a challenge for me because I think there'd be two temptations. One would be to teach the cognitive structures, like do they know the probability that we're confident this is cholecystitis? 
do I um, understand that this person has the treatment scripts for the possible treatments of cholecystitis? Like, are they familiar with the cholecystectomy? Are they familiar that we can use a percutaneous drainage? Are they familiar with what antibiotics? And do they maybe have a branching algorithm to sort among them? So that's one bucket of things I could choose to teach about. Um, I mean, within the limits of my uh, my knowledge, right? Like, I'm not going to go deep on surgical management of, um, of cholecystitis, right? But the last time I was in the OR was you know, in the mid 1990s, I think ether had just been invented for anesthesia. <laughs> so I'm not going to be, I'm not going to go into that depth of that script. Um, but I have a choice about whether I want to do that or all these other skills we're talking about. Part of me will say management is working in the situated context of our hospital. And I might not do, um, you know, all of our decisions in medicine are this combination of evidence base or sort of science. Um, psychology, which is all the human emotions of us and the um, uh, care provider, and then sociology, sort of the interaction of all these different services. And I may very well say in the realm of management reasoning, I'm going to make a decision today to teach this learner about how we navigate between um, the ID service, general surgery, and interventional radiology. And I might teach some communication skills around who we call and what sequence. I might um, teach them about how we have to present the case to each one of those services differently. I might teach them about the timing, like how we're going to proceed because it's Thursday at 10 a.m. compared to it's Friday at 4 p.m. And I think traditionally we wouldn't have said those were management reasoning. We would call those like that's how you get stuff done in the hospital. But I think you can really say like that is that extended uh, care process we're talking about. So there's some therapeutic decisions in there, but I'm teaching you the context in which it's done. And maybe some other teacher, maybe Emily will come along and teach them about the antibiotics that are most appropriate in this case. But my contribution today to this learner was some of that workplace stuff. And that was management reasoning. Well, I love that because it feels like we should invent another branch point, which is the get stuff done reasoning branch point. <laughs> but, but I think that highlights for us how important the language is here. You both are giving us so many incredible words to name what we're doing, whether it's the management pause, those four questions, the therapy script. And I think, um, Emily, I might turn to you to kind of piggyback off of what Gubricha said, which is how do you if you are going to choose to explain a therapy script or to process kind of that component of the therapeutic reasoning, how do you decide how to do that for learners at different stages of training? And specifically for Jamie here, who's a fourth year medical student. Right. Well, this is uh, something that I recently started doing. So I, I have the pleasure of being the co-director of the ID micro course, which means I get to work with students at the very end of their first year of medical school, which for us means the end, the really the end of their preclinical curriculum, since it's a one-year preclinical curriculum here. And I have started doing a clinical reasoning lecture with them. And I do this in part because ID really gets a bad rap. Everybody thinks early on that it's about bugs and drugs and memorizing those horrific tables. And so my goal in, in bringing this forward is really to disabuse them of this notion that they need to memorize bugs and drugs because you do that. And we've probably all had this, uh, had this happen to us where we learned some specific infectious syndrome as an early medical student and we knew its treatment and then you get to the ward and the first thing you see is your attending picking something completely different and you have no idea where that where that came from or you get used to a particular thing being done when you're a medical student and then you start intern year 
and you see that the uh, empiric choices for a common infectious syndrome is completely different at a different hospital. And so I, I don't want, I want them to know that I don't want them to focus on, um, on memorization. So that's the first point. The second point is that I want them to know that there are multiple pathogens that can cause each infectious syndrome and that we often don't know the answer. We only get culture uh, specific sort of diagnostics in a certain subset of, subset of cases. And then the third is that with few exceptions, there are always or there are usually multiple treatment options and that they have to take into account many different contextual factors to make those choices. And they need to know where to get the information uh, to make those choices when they get into the clinical realm. So I'm really giving them a schema for maybe organizing their knowledge and for approaching these problems so that they aren't thinking, well, pneumonia here means ceftriaxone and doxycycline, but somewhere else uh, a cap admission means you start unison and they're confused about what they're doing, but they're thinking more about basic principles. So that's why I bring it up so early to really introduce it as a process and to focus not on memorization, but how they organize their knowledge and where they can fill in the gaps. I think that's so helpful to teach how to teach how to learn instead of teaching just facts, because really this is a lifelong process. And if we have those skills to be able to build on, we can continue to improve. Uh, what do you do specifically to try to help your own skills continue to improve? Do you have any tips or techniques that you use to continue to grow? We can start with you, Gopreet. Yeah, I, I think we're all, we're all sort of lifelong learners, or at least we like to be. But I think, Molly, you asked a great question. Like, am I really doing anything extra? Or am I just sort of showing up to work and, and seeing my patients and, you know, doing my teaching and hoping that I improve? And I would say that, um, you know, I think 90% of our time is showing up for work and hoping that we're doing on-the-job learning. I think one of the things, since we're talking about management reasoning, um, one of the things that I might share that I do a lot is I always thought that feedback or tracking patients was, you know, a great way to figure out what was the final diagnosis. But increasingly, I found it is a great way to optimize my own management and sometimes even push my management because I can't get guidance from anywhere else, like the literature or something else. So um, an example I'll, I'll give because it came to mind recently was I work in the ER and we see a reasonable amount of um, ACE inhibitor induced angioedema. Um, it's a fair amount because we have so many patients with cardiovascular disease at the VA where I work. And I was taught a long time ago when they come in, no matter what they look like, um, how stable they are, we give them the whole sort of anaphylaxis angioedema cocktail. Like, you know, all the antihistamines are rolled out and epinephrine's considered and such. And it never jived with the pathophys that I learned in school, which was that this is kinin mediated instead of mast cell mediated. Um, I read sort of different authors said, hey, why do we do all this stuff over time? But I was never going to get anyone who said, yeah, don't give that treatment because people tend to either be risk averse or sort of habituated. I think Emily used the word uh, earlier about the canon, right? Like we get the, things are in the canon and handed down. And so however dangerous this sounds, I said, you know, I if I feel like I could do a better job and not throw this cocktail at people every time they come in with what looks like ACE angioedema, and sometimes that's very characteristic, like one side of a lip is swollen, but the person feels great, or um, a digit is swollen, and um, uh, there's a little bit of swelling in the tongue and such. And I watched them carefully over many, many hours. But what I learned was the treatment for them is actually to give them nothing and observe them and just make sure the, the ACE inhibitor is stopped. I was a little uncomfortable doing that because, you know, you're going against the canon. It's a high risk disease. And I said, the only way I can 
learn this for myself, optimize my own management reasoning, is that I have to track these patients afterwards. So for the first, I mean, I'm still nervous every time I do it, but I, I will, of course, watch them for a time. But I've learned now to call them in a couple of days. And I've learned that everyone has done fine without ever getting that cocktail. I've also learned from people, like I should make sure that I'm, you know, have certainty around that. And in calling these patients, I've sometimes learned that other things swell up in the days later, even though the main swelling, like the face and, and neck that we worry about go, goes away. So I guess offer that as saying that um, I can make better management decisions when I track how management goes. And in the hospital, we oftentimes have a captive audience. In primary care, it's a little more longitudinal, but we can track it. Um, but actually making a mental note and saying, lesson learned, I'm going to change what I do and what I teach is a little bit harder. Sometimes we never know if we're tracking a random event or if I've tracked something enough times to change um, uh, what I believe is a better management strategy. I guess for me, it's uh, it, I, I love Gupreet's example because I'm a big fan of patient tracking and following up to see what happens. And often when I come off service, I do that obsessively for a while to sort of see uh, how the how the cases go or keep the list longer than it needs to be as a consultant to sort of see what happens with the patient. But one of the things that's been really helpful to me in addition to that is to ask my colleagues lots of questions. It's true of ID, it's true of other specialties, but of course in ID we only have so many randomized controlled trials and there's a lot, not a lot of data out there around length of therapy, around choosing one particular antibiotic over another. And so if I see somehow a colleague making a choice that's different than what I would have made, either because they take over after me or they were on before me or they see one of my, one of the long-term patients I follow in clinic admitted with an exacerbation of the problem, I'll just ask them. I'll stop by their office or shoot them an email and say like, hey, you know, why would you choose this over this? Or when do you worry about this over that? And, and in that way, as someone who's fairly early in my own practice career, I'm really sort of benefiting from the collective knowledge of my colleagues who have been doing this longer, who have that practice experience, but always having the humility to ask why or to say like, oh, I would have thought to do this. Why did you do that? And sometimes it's preference and I can feel okay. Like uh, my my way of doing it isn't necessarily wrong. It's just different and we don't have knowledge about which is better. But sometimes I gain uh, or oftentimes I gain something from what they share. So I think it's just looking and using those opportunities to ask colleagues why they make different decisions. I just wanted to underscore the why part of it, because I think oftentimes we're comfortable asking, what would you give? What would you do? Um, but if you don't ask the why, um, you can't understand, like Emily said, is it preference? Do they and you have no new evidence or knowledge because they're specialized that I don't have? Do they have just a different risk profile, risk tolerance profile than I do? So not just the what, but understanding the why is the best chance for me to upgrade my reasoning decision the next time. And I love that coming from curiosity and humility. Um, I think a lot of times we see another provider do something and we say, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. But don't take that extra step of saying, you know, this is a, a situation I could learn from and this is something I can grow from. I was going to make the point that I think that my strategy works well being a fairly junior person. But the tone that you take when you ask the why questions, I think, needs maybe to shift a little when you're the senior person, just so it doesn't sound like an interrogation. I can ask why. And it sounds like to my division chief or the full professor that, that I'm interested in wanting to expand my knowledge. But if I ever get to that level and then ask, you know, the, the, um, the assistant professor, well, why did you do that? It might sound 
like I'm disagreeing with them from the onset. So knowing how to interact with colleagues around these questions to expand our own knowledge and to make sure that as a group we're providing important care uh, or the best possible care is really important. And I think language and tone matter a lot. I agree. And I love that you pointed that out, Emily, because I wondered, my one of my follow-up questions to you and Gurpreet was about how do you elevate the role of management reasoning uh, or specifically the subset of therapeutic reasoning in clinical practice? The example I thought of, Gurpreet, would be like for you to share the data of your monitoring of ACE inhibitor, you know, induced angioedema with, let's say, your division or and kind of reminding people about the power of um, that monitoring component or Emily, kind of how you ask why in that humble and curious way. I wonder what else you know, folks can do or we can do or you're thinking about doing to support the role of management reasoning? I would, you know, I have, I don't know if I've thought about it enough to say to elevate um, throughout, you know, and it's in some ways, you know, a lot of our conversations, I think Molly mentioned earlier, a lot of the work we do is management, right? In, in clinic, et cetera, we're making decisions under imperfect circumstances with provisional labels on things or hypotheses. I think uh, maybe sometimes what we don't do enough of is we sort of lament like, well, this is the way it is when in fact it's a skill, you know, oh, in this context, this is all I can do or without this consultant, this is all I, I can um, accomplish. And just saying like, given these circumstances, this is actually a skill navigating it. Um, and either I'm going to appreciate the great work you are doing, or I'm going to teach you how to do it better. Um, again, maybe that labeling thing we came back to. And an important point here, I've been thinking about this with a colleague, is that there's a real justice component to management reasoning. And I think sometimes we get in situations where the team decides, well, this is this is all we can accomplish with this particular patient. And often it's because of their contextual factors. And so I think that there is work we can do in management reasoning to say, what do we think is the best possible management plan from a medical perspective? Okay, what in what ways are we deviating from that best possible plan for this particular patient? Why are we de- deviating? And can we mobilize the full interdisciplinary team? Because I think management is about colleagues and our sort of allied health professionals. How can we mobilize that team to ensure that we're doing the best possible for this patient instead of saying, well, their circumstances are this, so we can't have this happen. And the iron is really hot to strike in that respect. And so I think bringing those issues forward as a flavor of management reasoning is one way we can get people to really get excited about the skill. It almost feels like you're doing, you're having an equity check to your management pause, right? Or an equity pause on top of the management mm-hmm. pause to just really ask yourself, like, is this what we would do or what what's the ideal and how do we get there and why aren't we there? I love that. That, that really has me thinking to the number of times we say, like, the patient's not a candidate for X. You know, it can be something big ticket like a transplantation or something as simple as an anticoagulant or something that someone needs or management decisions. And as I think about it, oftentimes we let that that phrase sort of uh, end all discussion. They're not a candidate. And there's sort of this, everyone acts like we have a shared understanding of why that's so. But I love that Emily's saying maybe we need to examine it and then marshal all the resources. And in thinking about assessment of learners around management reasoning, um, do you have any best practices, tips for that, Emily? 
I think this is so hard. And Cook and his colleagues raised this in a subsequent paper to their initial management reasoning paper. What should be our educational and research agenda for management reasoning since there's so much work to be done? And you're really dealing, as Gupreet mentioned earlier, diagnosis is a falsifiable hypothesis. Management is is not in most respects. And so how do we assess someone's management reasoning? I think that there are tools we can use to assess these different skills, com- communication, shared decision-making. We often ask questions or we answer questions on assessments and evaluations about how a learner is interacting and working with the entire medical team. But in terms of their therapeutic reasoning, it can be, become hard. And I just go back to what Gupreet said earlier about showing the work. That's not easy, but that's doable on a one-on-one basis. But how do we operationalize that for a medical school class of 150 or for a residency class of 50? Do we use natural language processing? Do we use sort of, do we take these things that are more qualitative and somehow have artificial intelligence and uh, other computer tools to help us look for patterns, look for ways that people are interacting with the medical record. I think that this is an area that scares me, but that is also exciting as we think about uh, partnering people who have more qualitative skills, partnering with people who have skills around big data to track and assess and provide feedback so that people can get better. Because to me, this is formative more than summative. I would agree. I feel uh, I don't have a Emily had a grand vision there. I'm more comfortable with the one on one, which is yeah. I don't think we have any great tools. And um, uh, getting back to showing your work, I think if I was to say how would I judge uh, a learner on their outcome or the outcome, one of the things I might assure them or hold myself to is I'm not going to judge them on how the patient did, which I know sounds like it's a um, cop out, but meaning like if you chose not to give antibiotics and the patient didn't do well. I'm not going to judge you on that. I do want to judge you on the strength of the argument that you made to make that decision. And conversely, if you gave them antibiotics and they did really well, I still will hold you to that same level of scrutiny so that the level of analysis is around the argument, not around the patient outcome only. Because we all know there's many, many factors that lead to an outcome going one way or the other. But the strength of the argument is something that's completely within the learner's skill set and knowledge set. And I think one more point on monitoring, it's really easy to be to have bias in the data that we collect. So you know if somebody who you don't give antibiotics to ends up in the unit overnight because they became increasingly septic uh, without that intervention. But we don't have a good way of sort of looking at, well, what was the cost to them in many different respects of having an additional antibiotic pill for a period of time after discharge for what probably wasn't an infection or not a severe infection? How did it change their microbiome? What's the importance of that? Research is still uh, ongoing. What about the cost to them of the medication or the extra days in the hospital? We often hear about C. diff, but not always as the prescribing providers. It can happen with the primary care physician who's following up after the fact. And so I think we have to modify our understanding of outcomes based on these unknowables that oftentimes we aren't really able to measure. And I think one of the other things I try to do in in teaching in general, clinical reasoning, a lot of times what we're focused on is 
analyzing how they did now, but not there's no real judgment about how things went now. There's just an obsession with how will the learner do the next time their brain sees this problem. So the next time they're faced with this problem, how will they do? And then it's on me as the teacher to say, have I really checked to see if my teaching or feedback that I gave was uploaded. And so I think when we have a discussion and say, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have given antibiotics in this case for these reasons, or um, I think even though this lists a penicillin allergy, you should feel comfortable for these reasons based on the data around it. I think you oftentimes want to check and check can either be like they repeat back to you, which is probably the lowest level, or I observe them in a second set of circumstances. We're working together for two weeks. So I watch the next time they have to make a borderline antibiotic decision. And I really want to see, like, have I succeeded in modifying their scripts and knowledge structures around these antibiotic choices um, or, or some of those other skills we were talking about, shared decision-making? And just to name it, Gurpita and Emily, are you all saying that you do have kind of a follow-up conversation around the management reasoning components that, um, let's say, for Jamie or for Jackie that you kind of listed, as in, you know, circling back at the end of the shift or at the end of clinic or maybe two days later when you find out? that patient did or did not go to the unit? Are you all kind of having a follow-up conversation or are you waiting for that second time that we may interact to see was the, um, you know, did the brain process that information and, and do something differently the second time? I think it's probably both. So you can often have those follow-up conversations. Things happen when you're the primary team. Things happen when you're the consultant and you get called back because the original plan didn't work. And those are great places to introduce that conversation about why we chose what we chose, what was our reasoning behind that, and and then what have we learned in follow-up. But I, I think that Gopreet's point about seeing how what you've taught them applies itself in a future case is a really important one, even if it's not an exact correlate. If they've learned how to mobilize consultants and then you have a very different case, but you see them mobilizing consultants in the same way based on the teaching, then that's import an important check too. And on that feedback about how outcomes go, um, I, um, you know, a lot of times the, you, it is with the learners. Like I attend for a month and at the end of the month, I go over cases with our, we have enough time has passed with people we've discharged that we can share, um, how they're doing. But then there's other patients that I see in urgent care with, uh, residents and they rotated on and I set a reminder for myself in a month. And, um, when I find the case and I find out what happened, I try to tell myself, I'm like, I want to be that attending who sends the email to the resident and says, Hey, you know, that guy who had the joint loose or the prosthetic loosening of his joint and we didn't know if he should go to ortho or not turns out ortho thought that was a really useful consult and he's getting a revision um, and I could I can be two different versions of the attending I can be the person who clicks through the EMR and says Oof, glad that worked out and uh, internalize it for myself or I can have a multiplier effect and say I'm going to get the learning and I'm also going to send the email or text to the resident um, to let them learn from this case as well. And it's not just learners. My big dream is that the culture of medicine changes so that you can see what other colleague has seen that, seen that patient and share that information with them as well, such as the uh, colleague that I had who I filled in for while they were sick and saw this fever in the ICU and were going through the algorithm and didn't know what it was. And then a few days later, um, she emailed me and said, turns out that they had candidemia, uh, which of course is on the differential, but just closing that loop for a really sick, complicated patient that I otherwise maybe for that one day on wouldn't have had the bandwidth to go back 
and look to see what the diagnosis was. So I think we can share with colleagues too, and we should be open to giving and receiving that feedback just to mobilize other people's clinical experiences for our own learning. I love that, helping us all get better. Emily, I'm, I'm curious from your recent paper that you had published and around some qualitative research in making antimicrobial decisions, um, what kind of surprised you the most? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So I was surprised because we had pretty simple clinical vignettes. And of course, vignette-based research has its affordances and its its um, sort of barriers. But they were simple because we didn't want things to be too complicated uh, so that we could really distill what we thought were the main sorts of points around antimicrobial reasoning. And it surprised me how much people were able to go beyond that context in many cases and say, well, I want to know about this or in this kind of patient, I would think about this. So they were expanding beyond the vignette uh, in ways that I didn't anticipate that they would do. I also think it was surprising how little patient preference came in to the answers that they gave. Again, that may be more vignette specific because there was no patient to talk to. But I do think it says something about the way that we think about incorporating patient preferences into specific drug selection, that we're not always involving people as much as we should, unless they ask questions or they say, I've read a paper about this new drug. What about this? Or I saw a commercial on the TV about this particular drug. And if they're not bringing it up, how much are we really talking with them, even if we're weighing different options in our mind? Super interesting. That'd be a great teaching exercise. Like make a, for a, a therapy script, like make a commercial for this drug. <laughs> that, would <be laughs> awesome. that would really test someone's uh, creative skills right. and their therapy script. Right, and how quickly they could talk since all the adverse <laughs> effects are always said uh, yeah. very quickly at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do all the risks in 10 seconds or less? <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been so interesting. Ira, um, any last questions that you feel like are important to ask? I think maybe this is kind of a uh, pie-in-the-sky question, but Emily and Gupruth, I wonder what would you have wanted to know when you first uh, started off, maybe for Emily, I would say like early in, in faculty year and uh, Gupruth early in your faculty career um, about management reasoning, like something that you wish someone had told you, maybe doing that equity check, Emily, that you kind of brought up earlier or um, kind of the the power of the get stuff done reasoning, maybe what uh, to share with our listeners who are just starting off maybe their journey in uh, teaching about and uh, honing their own skills in management reasoning. Well, I think you answered it for me because that's a fairly recent idea um, that I've had and, and with some colleagues uh, that I think is so timely and important. Well, it's always been important, but I think that the circumstances are such that people are thinking about it a lot more. And how often do we make decisions based on assumptions about people and what they're able to tolerate or what their circumstances allow when the circumstances are really a large part of what brought them to the current clinical circumstance. And I think if we can start answer, asking and answering those questions, we'll really make a big impact on care. And it also reinforces this idea that this so-called softer skills 
in medicine are very important to what we see as what has always been billed as a more cerebral task of medicine around reasoning, that they're very much integrated and embedded, and that your ability to do these things is part of your ability to take care of specific diagnoses. And if I think, I, if I was to reflect on management reasoning, I, you know, I think it's maybe what we hard to do earlier, like elevating all the work that we do in the clinic or in the ER, in the hospital to, it is a bucket of work called management reasoning and pointing that out to learners. You know, I think as we're having this conversation, I think most like who lives management reasoning and at least in the inpatient setting, I think you might say that's like intern year, right? Interns oftentimes are super busy. They're, um, uh, they're moving quick and forming diagnoses, and then they are tasked with lots and lots of management. And, um, you know, we all come out at the end of intern year being like, I'm not sure what I learned. I learned a ton. I don't know. <laughs> I don't feel like I learned factual stuff, but I learned a ton. And I think one of the things that now I recognize what we learn is we learn a lot of management reasoning. Um, and because it's not as clearly, cleanly circumscribed like diagnostic reasoning, it's not as iconic as diagnostic reasoning. It's not what we had focused on when we were clerks in medical school, um, it's sort of left like I learned something else, but I think we're trying to put a name on this is what you're learning and you're going to get better at just like we all do over time. I tell the fellows uh, when we're making these sorts of decisions and talking about communication that a lot of what we do is antibiotic psychology and that their ability to <laughs> uh, convince teams to de-escalate and, and how they phrase that and the cadence at which you peel away broad spectrum antibiotics. I think that that's one of the biggest tasks that I and, and learning skills that I talk to them about is like, great, you know exactly what drug we should use. How are you going to make that happen when it's not you who's putting in the orders? And um, I think getting them to recognize that that's one of the biggest skills they learn is a huge takeaway from the first part of a fellowship. If we could drop things in college, like I don't know, like physics and calculus from pre-med and put in things like psychology and sociology, it would be transformative for our profession. Absolutely. I don't know how often I've used integrals or derivatives recently, but there's a whole I totally agree. Psychology and psychology, I think I really could have leaned on. Awesome. Well, any last take-home points that you guys have? I think those almost were take-home points, but I'd love to hear any additional ones if you have. I just have one uh, spare key. It's sort of a, um, it's a great management reasoning um, inquiry that a uh, teacher here in San Francisco, I know Dr. Michael Coppolino, he's the former program director at Kaiser South San Francisco. We've gotten, discuss we have various topics or discussions about reasoning, and he has this great exercise that draws on the weather forecast you see. He says, um, sometimes, you know, you have a very advanced learner and the diagnostic reasoning seems intact, and even their management decisions now seem very solid. And you say, where am I going to find the margin of their knowledge? And what he does is he says, give me the five-day forecast. So how do you think things are going to play out in the next five days, uh, which is the exact same job that the meteorologist has to do. Uh, but oftentimes, even in a very advanced learner, you can find out ah, that's the margin of their knowledge and reasoning. Like they think that X person is going to consult and Y is going to happen and things will end happily ever after with Z or they have the opposite experience. And so that's another opportunity to interrogate their reasoning and find out. Because remember what we said, management reasoning is that therapeutic reasoning, but also this monitoring process. So it's a great way to say, what is their monitoring plan and anticipation? So I want to drop that as a teaching tool, say, what's the five-day forecast for this patient? And my last 
little tidbit would just be a plug that uh, it's really fun to engage in research around management reasoning. It can be hard to figure out how you're going to measure things, but I think it's really rewarding and has the potential to really transform medical care. So just uh, just a plug for all the very, very smart, creative uh, listeners to this podcast to think about the, the study that they want to conduct because there's lots of questions to be asked. Can I plug Emily's paper? Because I think that was, um, she's not going to plug it for herself, so I'm going to do it on her behalf. I, I've watched this literature, and I think in the last 10 years, there's been one or two thought pieces, but this is the only empiric work that has really examined it. And by reading her paper alone, whether you're an antibiotic buff or not, um, you will learn the definitions of what we're talking about. There's frameworks that are built in there that teachers and learners can um, use, like we've talked about here. And I also think it's a really great example of what qualitative research needs to be done to really understand management. It's almost certainly going to be, or therapy, it's going to be very context specific. Um, so you choose one uh, uh, context, choosing antibiotics in the setting of infections, um, and you can just see how the nuances are all built out. So I think it'd be a model for a lot of learners and um, early researchers. I certainly go back to it many times. Well, thank you. It was It was fun research to conduct as well. Well, Emily, I heard you plugging the, the role of research and Gurpreet plugging your paper. Was there anything else? Should we plug? Are there any other things that we should note? Uh, resources? Uh, anything else you all want to plug for this? So we're both familiar with uh, some some work um, that's been done on the management script. And we didn't talk a lot about management scripts here. We talked mostly about therapy, but a management script is is much like any other script in that it's taking a diagnosis and looking at what are all the possibilities in in a certain number of of buckets uh, around management reasoning. So things like consultation, labs, imaging studies, uh, things like that. And I think that it's a really useful teaching tool. And this was a paper by Andrew Parsons and a couple colleagues that came out in academic medicine, and I think is pretty easy to apply in practice, especially for your more advanced learners. I agree. I thought that paper, it took me some time to learn all this lingo where you know diagnosis ends and management begins. And I think in that paper, there's a great diagram and it's very authentic to the work that happens. I think any intern is going to open up that paper and say like, oh yeah, that's what I do um, for those patients. Well, thank you both so much for your time. This has been just really great. And I think a lot for us to continue to think about and, and really a stepping off point to become better teachers. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I agree. Thank you all. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders Teach, bringing you your weekly dose of edutainment. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for supporting this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowska. Take care. <laughs>